Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Please take out your Bibles and turn to Romans 8. It's Romans 8, 31 through 39. And the word of the Lord reads, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Ann Dutton once wrote, A soul kept alive by God and for Him amid, amid sins, Satan's, and the world's heart-killing influence is a miracle of omnipotent grace. So I want to welcome you back to our sermon series on Romans titled, The Power of the, the Gospel. And uh, church family, I have to tell you right now this morning, I am I'm very, very excited today. I am very excited. Um, and not just because today's Super Bowl Sunday, by the way, right? I mean, I mean, I want you to know I am excited about that because as you know, uh, uh, football is an important part of the Burkhead family life and it has been for a long time. But that's not the reason why I'm actually so excited today. I'm really actually excited about this morning's text. Um, and I've been excited about it for, for quite some time. I've been looking forward to preaching this particular text for months, actually. I mean, I've been reading through Romans over and over again, and this text I keep coming back to, and I just can't wait to preach it. Right? But the problem is I've had to wait. You see, several years ago, I committed myself to the practice of expository preaching. And that is preaching through a book of the Bible one section at a time. And the point of this kind of preaching is to, to systematically work through a book of the Bible in order to uncover what God Himself says to us in His Word. And, and what that means is, I don't start then with the topic and then ask, what are all the scriptures that are related to that topic? Instead, I start with the scripture, then I ask the question, what are all the topics that God Himself raises and addresses in this text? What is God saying and why is it important? And then, what do we do in light of that? And this kind of preaching, I believe, has been beneficial for our church family uh, because it causes us to address and think through everything that God speaks on in His Word rather than just the popular things that we want to talk about or preach about. In fact, I used to preach topically, uh, and, and when I did, there were just certain subjects I would come back to over and over and over again, certain subjects that were easy to talk about, like the grace of God. That was easy, right? Uh, and then there were certain subjects I really never got around to or never, never even thought of addressing. But expository preaching forces us to work through everything that we encounter in the text along the way, including uplifting subjects like the grace and love of God. But it also forces us to deal with things that are not so easy to talk about, which is God's wrath and His hatred of sin. And I believe that expository preaching has been good for our church family as we work through the whole counsel of God. And it has certainly been good for me personally as a preacher 
and a follower of Christ because it has really helped me to grow in my understanding of the Christian faith and helped me to really appreciate the depth of God's Word. And uh, I, I believe, or I, I would like, I would hope that it has made me a better minister and pastor. But, but there are times when expository preaching is challenging uh, because sometimes there are texts um, that bring up issues that are just hard to preach about. I really sometimes don't want to have to deal with certain things, or sometimes they're just subjects that are hard to hear, like the bad news of the gospel. In, the, in the, this letter to the Romans, Paul spent three chapters, three chapters unpacking the bad news of the gospel. And you might say, well, wait a minute, I thought the gospel was the good news. And you're right, it is the good news, but the, the good news of the gospel is only good news if you understand the bad news. And, and, and the bad news that Paul explains is that all of mankind everywhere is universally under God's justice because of sin. And his wrath then hangs over their heads even to this moment. And no one is immune, including the, the Gentiles and Jews alike. And Paul takes three chapters to build his argument and make that fact abundantly clear that God's wrath abides on all of mankind. He spent three chapters meticulously building his case and addressing objections and establishing you know, the bad news of man's condition. And then he finally explains the good news that God makes a way for man to be saved through Jesus Christ. The glorious truth that we are saved by grace through faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross. And as a preacher committed to expository preaching, I have, I have to patiently and deliberately walk through, you know, I had, to, I had to walk through these entire three chapters, section by section, unpacking what Paul was explaining. And we spent weeks upon weeks on, upon weeks getting through this, dealing with all the issues that he was addressing. Paul, again, was making it abundantly clear that mankind was indeed corrupt, and, and it was that way from the beginning, and we deserved God's justice. And he hammered that point home so that nobody would miss it. And it was challenging to spend that much time on a difficult subject like that, like the subject of God's wrath. And it, but, but it was necessary, right? It was necessary, but it was certainly challenging nonetheless. Well, another challenge to expository preaching is when there are times like now that I see a text, I read that text, and I look forward to preaching it. I can't wait to get there. Sometimes there is a text that I want to get to so badly, I'm just tempted to rush through everything else to get to that, to that spot. Well, today's text, I'm finally, I'm finally here, right? I've been looking forward to preaching this particular text for, for months now. Why? Because today's text is where Paul will summarize his case for one of the greatest one of the most beautiful and one of the most joy-inspiring and hope-engendering doctrines in the entire Bible. Paul is going to bring his case to, to conclusion, this case about the security of those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. I got the goosebumps just talking about that. Right? The truth that those who trust in Jesus are completely, totally safe in the hands of God. I mean, we've been saying... That Romans chapter 8 is the pinnacle of the gospel. Romans chapter 8 brings us to the summit, to the, the point of our, our hope, the divine assurance that our salvation in Christ, that, that, that we are assured that God will see us personally, safely, all the way home. This is why we sang the verse this morning from Come Thou Fount. Hear these words again, afresh. On that day, freed from sinning, I shall see thy lovely face, full arrayed in blood-washed linen, how I'll sing thy sovereign grace. Come, O Lord, no longer tarry, bring thy promises to pass, for I know thy power will keep me till I'm home with thee at last. That is the assurance that we that we wait for. That's the assurance that Paul speaks of here. You see, the Super Bowl, which we are certainly excited about, is the pinnacle of all football and perhaps, I believe, all of American sports. 
It's the high point of the entire season, and it's what all football players and football fans look forward to. Even those who don't even watch football during the regular season will typically take a little time and watch the game today because they are likewise excited about it because it represents all that the players hope for and inspire and, and aspire to. The Super Bowl is the pinnacle of football. Well, Romans chapter 8 is the pinnacle of the gospel. It is the very high point. As H.B. Charles had said, that the, if the Bible is a gold ring, then Romans 8 is the centrally mounted diamond in that ring. Um, it's also been said, right? If Romans chapter 8 is the diamond, then this particular section of text that we have before us is the pinnacle cut of the diamond, Right? These verses from 31 to 39, they are the very pinnacle of the pinnacle. And that, brothers and sisters, is why I'm so excited and I can barely contain myself. Because in these few verses, Paul is going to make it clear. He's going to make his closing argument on why we believers can rest completely assured in our gospel hope. And he, he does so in a way that leaves no doubt that no matter what happens in this life, whether we win or whether we lose, our hope in Jesus is completely certain because God is the author and the finisher of our salvation. God is the one who saves us, and He is the one who then keeps us saved. So again, turn with me to Romans 8, and we will begin looking at verse 31. And as always, before we get completely into the text, let me remind you just of the, of the rough landscape. Romans, uh, Paul has been leading us on a journey up a great mountain. And he begins by, he, he, he writes this letter, first of all, to the church in Rome to let them know exactly what the gospel is, to make sure that everybody is completely on the same page. And in writing this letter, Paul writes the very best and most complete exhortation and exposition of the gospel in the entire Bible. We understand the gospel the way that we do because of what he wrote in Romans. And Paul begins with the declaration that the gospel is, in fact, the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it's written, the righteous shall live by faith. And then right after that, Paul explains what the gospel is, the bad news of man's condition and the good news of what God has done to save man. And then after that, Paul explains the blessings that the gospel bestows upon those who believe. And then he explains how the gospel works. And then from there, he addresses some of the common objections to the gospel, and he declares the freedom that believers have in Christ, freedom from sin, freedom from the requirements of the law. And it was from that height then Paul helps us to ascend to even the higher slopes of Romans chapter 8, where Paul declares that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. The idea of condemnation has been completely taken off the table for those who trust in Jesus. And we continue even higher as he points us to the indwelling spirit who is in us that is proof that we are redeemed and that we are the children of God and heirs with Christ, heirs of a glorious inheritance. And we continue even higher as Paul declares that even the worst suffering that we encounter in this life is nothing compared to the glorious hope that we're guaranteed to, to come to, the hope of our final redemption where our bodies and minds and characters are all made perfect and we live in a perfect world in the presence of the God we love so much. And then Paul points us to the reality that God himself does even for us the things we don't even know we need to do in order to sanctify us, that God the Holy Spirit is the one who intercedes for us before God the Father. And then Paul affirms our salvation and endurance in the faith that it's not only a present reality, it is a decreed reality, an ordained reality. It has been decreed in eternity past. And because of that, it is immutable, unchangeable, and it is certain our salvation is guaranteed because God ordained for it to be so. And then Paul reminds us of the promise that God works all things. 
all things out for those who love him, those who have been called to, according to his purpose, those who God ordained to save. God works all things out, even the worst of things, for our ultimately good. God in his sovereignty and in control takes even the worst parts of our lives, every part of our life, and everything that happens around us and to us and works those out ultimately for his glory and for our good. And if that were not enough, then if that weren't sufficient enough to convince us of the certainty of the hope that we have in Christ, Paul then takes us by the hand and grabs hold of us and pulls us to the very tip top of the summit of our hope in the remainder of this chapter. And in verse 31, he writes, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? In other words, in light of all of this, in light of all these things that I have been telling you, what else is there to say? What else do you need to hear? What else do you need to know? Are you not yet convinced? What shall we say to these things? And then he asked the rhetorical question that should end all other rhetorical questions. If God is for us, then who, who can be against us? The creator of heaven and earth, the one who knows all, the one who sees all, the one who can do all. If he is the one who's for us, then who could possibly be against us? And the answer, obviously, is no one. No one can be against us. There's not anyone. And the reason we know this is because we know who God is in his attributes. This is, by the way, why it's important to study the attributes of God. You have a better picture of him in the hope that you have. Because if you understand his attributes, you know for a fact that no one can be against us. Because God is holy. Unlike anything else in creation, he is he is God, and then there's everything else, creation. And God is infinitely greater than the sum total of all of creation. You take the entire universe and everything in it, and God is still infinitely greater than all of that. And not just that, but God is self-existent or independent. Right? He possesses the quality we call aseity, which means that, that he owes his existence to nothing else or no one else besides himself. See, God is not like us. We are dependent completely on Him. The moment that He stops taking care of you is the moment you go. God was not caused by anything. He does not depend on anything for His existence like we do, which means there isn't anything that can manipulate Him. There's not anything that can threaten Him. There's not any entity or person who can extort God. There's nothing that can force Him to go back on His Word. God depends on nothing else, which means there's nothing that binds him. God is also immutable, which is a fancy way of saying that he doesn't change. He doesn't change his plans. He doesn't change his nature. He doesn't change his mind. God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And what that means is no one then can talk God out of saving you. Even your worst enemy. Nothing can alter what God has decreed for you. God is also omnipotent, which means He is all-powerful. The thing that I think sometimes is easy for us to lose sight of is any power that anything possesses in the universe actually is derivative of His power. Meaning that nothing has the power that it has unless God has granted it to them because it all comes from Him. All power ultimately comes from God, and as such, there's nothing that can stand against Him. There's nothing that can thwart His will. There's nothing that can overpower Him or overcome Him which leads to the truth about God's sovereignty. God absolutely rules over everything in the universe. One of my favorite preachers and theologians, R.C. Sproul, once said, there is not a maverick molecule in the entire universe. Everything and everyone obeys God's sovereign command. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and everything and everyone is subject to His divine will. And I can go on and on and on, but the answer to Paul's question is, is simple and indisputable. There's nothing or no one in all of creation that can stand against us if God himself is for us. Now, ultimately, 
like all verses, people like to take these things out of context. And I want you to know, this is not about winning athletic competitions. I've heard athletes say, if God is for us, then who could be? You know, I mean, God knows who's going to win the Super Bowl, right? But, you know, there's Christians on both sides of that equation, right? This is not about athletic competitions. This is not about being successful and always having the ability to achieve your dreams in life and never going through any hard times like prosperity preachers would like to preach. You know, I've heard it said, you know, well, if God is for you, who can be against you? You know, this isn't about also winning wars, right? The reality is, is our, our causes aren't always just as much as we would like to think that they are. The truth, God isn't always for us in all of these respects. This is, in context, actually, is about the certainty of our hope and inheritance that we have. That's what this is about. Because, because of our faith in Christ, God is for us. God has promised that those who put their faith in Jesus will be saved, and they possess the moment that they believe an inheritance that cannot be taken from them. They are adopted immediately into God's family and given the Holy Spirit as a guarantee of their salvation, and nothing and no one has the power to change that. Because if God is for us and our salvation, then who can be then against us and deny us that? If God has ordained to save us, then who can unsave us? But pastor, what about those people who walk away from their faith? What about those who, who are right now, you know, deconstructing is the, is the popular phrase today. What about those people? What about those people who like to get on YouTube and, you know, create a new following saying, I used to be a Christian, but I'm no longer a Christian anymore. What about them? What about them? Let me just share with you the words of the Apostle John. In 1 John 2.19, he says, They went out from us, but they, nev- they were not of us. But if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might become plain that they are all not of us. If a po- person walks away legitimately from their faith to never return, I want you to hear me. If a person walks away from their faith, never to return, then they were never of the faith. If someone claims to be a Christian, but they walk away, never to come back. And I want you to understand, there are people that it would appear that they have walked away, but if you watch their life long enough to see them come back, because God finishes what he starts. But if they walk away, never to return, they were not of the faith. They might have been religious. They, They might have been excited but they didn't have saving faith. In fact, one of the most important parables on the subject is the parable of the sower. So very clear. The sower goes out to sow. The sow. What, what do they sow? The seed, the word of God. And those, there were those who received the word who were the rocky soil, right? And they sprouted up and the sun caused them to wither. And Jesus said, Those are the people who receive the word with great joy, sprout up, but because of persecution and the difficulties of this life, they withered away, fruitless. And then he said, the others who received the word, right, and they received it and they began to grow, but they never bore any fruit because of the cares of this world, right, proving that they were also unbelievers. The truth is that there will be people in this world and even in church who will look like Christians and even talk like them for a period of time and walk like them, but end up falling away because they never actually were saved. They, their faith was counterfeit. But those who are truly born again, the distinguishing mark of those who truly trust in Christ is they will endure. Those who truly are trusting in Christ and Christ alone, they will endure to the end because God himself is the author of their salvation and nothing can stand against God. If God is for us, then no one can be against us. And that is a glorious declaration. And the truth is, Paul could have just simply stopped there. He could have just said that and then moved on to Romans chapter 9, right, and, and, and left us there. But he doesn't. He actually goes on and he says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? 
there is so much rich theology in this one verse that I could do a whole sermon series on this verse alone. But I promised myself and I promised you all it wouldn't take six years to get through the book of Romans. John Piper did, right? But I don't know if I have it in me. I actually do want to get through this letter at some time in the century, but, but there are a couple of things I do need to draw your attention to before we move on. First of all, notice Paul makes it clear that God is the one who gave his son up for redemption. God is the one who gave him up. Yes, it is true that Judas betrayed him. It is absolutely equally true that the Jews arrested him and then handed him over to the Romans. And it is true that the Romans were the ones who then took him and nailed him to a cross with nine-inch nails and then let him hang there and suffocate in agony for hours until he finally died. And yes, they were all responsible for their sins and the part that they played. And they did exactly what they wanted to do according to their own free will. They are all responsible. That is true. But it is God who is the one who ordained it. It was God who didn't just allow it. It was God who sovereignly worked throughout all of history and in the lives of all those people and their individual free choices to bring about exactly what He wanted to happen. Ultimately, God is the one who put His beloved Son to death. God the Father gave Him up. This isn't an accident in history. This isn't something that God didn't plan for. This was His divine decree. It was according to His plan and will. In fact, Isaiah 53.10, some of the most haunting words in the entire Bible. If you read the Hebrew, it literally says, It pleased Yahweh to crush Him. Some of the translations tame it down and say it was God's will to crush Him. No, the, the, the Hebrew word means that He... It, he delighted in it. He, it pleased him. It was, it was his will, his perfect will to crush his own son. A truth that just simply struggles to fit in here. It was God's will to put Jesus to death. God didn't simply allow it to happen. God actively caused it to happen. It was his will for Christ to come into the world and die on the cross to make atonement for our sins. It was His will for Christ to bear the wrath of God that we rightly deserve. By the way, that's why Jesus in His humanity in the garden, if you remember, He prayed, Father, if it's Your will, let this cup pass. We don't have to do it this way. We can do it some other way. But what does He say? But not my will, but Your will be done. God is the one who handed His Son over. And what does that mean for us? It means, without a doubt, that salvation is completely God's own work. And I know this goes without saying, right? Because we say it over and over again, but this is something that people lose sight of all the time. This is, this is why there are people who still today will say that a person who gets saved by God can somehow unsave himself by his own power. I mean, that's what it means when a person says... They believe you can lose your salvation. They're not saying that you can lose your salvation like you can lose your cell phone by accident, right? That you can just, you know, where'd it go? How many of you ever lost your cell phone? Okay. How many of you lost your wallet before? Right? It's a stressful, right? But guess what? It happens, right? They're not saying that when they say you can lose your salvation. They're saying that you, because you're the instrument that caused yourself to be saved, that somehow then you have the power on your own to unsave your Self, but the Bible tells a completely different story. Salvation is God's work and not man's. He ordained it, He orchestrated it, He paid for it. He's the one who applies it to us. That's what we've seen throughout this entire chapter in Romans. God Himself decreed what was necessary to satisfy His own wrath on your behalf, and then God Himself puts forward the only sacrifice that can meet that lofty demand. He put forth His own Son. Again, if you remember the Paul's words in Romans chapter 3, beginning in, in 20, beginning in verse 23, he says, For there is no distinction, 
For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. God is the one who made the sacrifice to save you. Do you understand that? God sacrificed to save you. And in light of that, Paul says, He who did not spare His own Son, gave, but gave him, gave him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? This is the second thing that you need to see in this text, is that God didn't withhold His Son. If He didn't withhold His Son, He's not going to withhold anything else you need either. Now, please, let's be really clear. Paul's not talking about you getting all the things that you want in this life. <laughs> okay, And I say that because there are some who pervert the gospel and say, you know, what that this verse means is that God, since He didn't spare His Son, He'll give you everything else you want. I've heard it preached that way. If you'll just have enough faith, God will give you all the desires of your heart. God will give you everything you want. That God will give you the house of your dreams if you'll just believe. If God will give you the car of your dreams. God will give you the woman of your dreams. That He will make you rich. He will make you famous. If you'll have enough faith because He didn't spare His own Son, then He'll give you all other things. Let's just agree that that's not what, what Paul has in mind here. What Paul is talking about is all the things that are required to bring you safely home. He's talking about all the things that you need to endure in your faith in this life. He's talking about all the things that you need to finally receive the inheritance that's waiting for you that he has promised. You see, the point that Paul is making is if God didn't spare his own son but handed him over, right, what was most precious to him, then there isn't any link that God isn't willing to go to to save you. Christ on the cross is a declaration of the links that God is willing to go to redeem His children. Oh, how deep, how wide, how long, oh, how vast is the love of Jesus. That's what we're saying, right? If God is willing to take His beloved Son, who was perfect and sinless, and put, him, put on Him all of your sins, and then pour out His wrath on Him instead of you, if God is willing to do that, then there's nothing that you need for salvation that God Himself won't provide. That's the essence of what Paul is saying here. If God didn't hold back His Son but caused him to die, to pay you for a redemption. There's nothing else that you need to be saved that he won't provide for you. Your salvation is sure because God provides everything you need to be saved. And then again, there, if that weren't enough to convince you of the security of your hope, Paul then steps into the courtroom of heaven. And he says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Make no mistake, Paul has the law in mind here. He has a courtroom in mind here. Who can bring an accusation against the ones that God has redeemed? And the first thing we need to notice is how Paul refers to those who hope in Christ. How he refers to those who are redeemed. He, he calls them God's what? God's elect. And this isn't a mistranslation. It's not a mistake in transmission. This is exactly the Greek word that Paul wanted to use. And this word that Paul uses here is eclectos, and it's derived from the idea of choosing. Literally what Paul says is that God is, saves those, the ones that he chooses. This is further validated by what we just read before about those who come to faith. He said, remember, he says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed in the image of his son in order that he might become be the firstborn of many brothers, and those whom He predestined, He also called, and those whom He called, He justified, and on he, those whom He justified, He also glorified. Paul uses the word elect to make clear that God is the one who is the author and the finisher of the faith of those who trust in Christ, because God is the one who initiates faith, because God has chosen them according to His own sovereign will and redemption. God is the one who set them apart. God is the one who ordains them for salvation. In fact, the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith puts it this way, just as God has appointed the elect to glory, 
so has he so he has by the by the eternal and completely free purpose of his will foreordained the means therefore those who are elected being fallen in adam are redeemed by christ and effectually called to faith in Christ by His Spirit working at the appropriate time. They are justified, adopted, sanctified, and kept by His power through faith to salvation. Those who come to faith in Christ are God's elect. Now, some people will then ask me, well, well then how do I know, Pastor? How do I know that I'm one of God's elect? That's really easy, actually. Repent and believe the gospel, right? If you repent and believe the gospel, then you are one of God's elect. If you trust in Jesus Christ for your salvation and you're trusting in Him alone, then you have been chosen by God, period. End of story. It's not any more complicated than that. If you ever wonder, I wonder if God really loves me, if I'm really one of His elect, do you believe the gospel? Well, yes. Then you're one of the elect. I wonder, man, if God has forgotten me, do you believe that Jesus is is the only way for salvation and you trust in Him and Him alone for your salvation? Yes. Then you're chosen by God. Praise the Lord. But but let's not miss the forest for the trees because there's actually a bigger point that Paul is making here. It's easy to kind of get tangled up on some of these things, but, but there's a larger point that Paul's making. Paul is continuing his argument that those who were in Christ are secure and they're secure because God has purposed by His own will to save them. And what Paul is saying is if God himself, who has no rival and no equal, if he is willing to do everything necessary for salvation, including electing them by his own will to salvation, if God can and will do that, then who could possibly bring any type of accusation or charge against them that will cause God to change his mind? Who can bring a charge against them in the courtroom of heaven to cause God to go back on his word and say, you know what? Maybe we ought to rethink this. The answer, obviously, is there is no one. Not even the devil can cause him to change his mind, though he does try. Because he is the accuser, make no mistake. That's what Satan means. means the adversary, the accuser. He continually makes accusations against us. He continually tries to call attention to all the ways that we fail and fall short in sin. And guess what? We have given him plenty of ammunition. Revelation 12 says that, that, that he accuses believers day and night before God. He continually is trying to bring charge against us. And you know what I'm talking about. Because he does the same thing to you. If you've been a Christian for any length of time at all, you've heard the whispers in your own conscience. Have you not? How can God love someone like you with all the stupid things that you do? I've heard that before, haven't you? How can God forgive you when you continue to do that stupid sin and then you repent and then you do it again? How have you, you know, you know, you've repented that same stupid thing for like a thousand times and you still think that you're forgiven? Why in the world would God sacrifice His Son for someone like you who continually falls and fails? The voice of the accuser is ever-present, continually at work trying to persuade God and us that we ought to be set aside, that we ought to be forgotten and left behind. But Paul has said that God Himself has elected us to salvation and done everything necessary to bring about our salvation. So then who can legitimately bring a charge against us that can stand? And the answer again is no one, not even the accuser. And the reason why that there will be no charges brought against us is because, as Paul says, if God, it is God who justifies, who is it to condemn? One of the difficulties sometimes when you read a passage of Scripture is sometimes the, the verse markings are kind of like in weird spots and it kind of interrupts the flow of thought, but those two ideas go together. They're not separate verses. They're the same idea. If God, It is God who justifies Who then is the one who condemns? Again, our salvation is the work of God. He is the one who justifies us. We're not justified because of ourselves. That's the whole point of the Christian faith. You're justified by faith in what God has already done. I mean, we may have to believe, and we do believe, but God is the one who does the justifying. 
God is the one who declares, makes that judicial pronouncement that we are righteous. We're not righteous because we do good stuff. We're righteous because God said that you're righteous based on what Christ has already done. Right? You only have to live about 20 minutes after getting saved to realize, man, it's not because of me. It is through the gospel that we're justified. God is the one who justifies. And the term then condemn is the opposite judicial pronouncement. It's the opposite of justify. It is to judge. It is to punish. Right? And Paul, if you remember, at the very beginning of chapter 8, he said that those who are in Christ, that condemnation is already taken off the table. Remember, he said, I want you to hear the words, there is therefore now, in this moment, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And what Paul is saying is no one can accuse us because God himself is the one who has justified us. So there's not anybody or anything that can condemn us. Again, we go back to God's attributes. Who can undo what God does? No one. Who can force God to change? No one. Who is, who is in a higher court? Who can overrule God's judgment? I mean, that's what we do in our country, right? If we don't get the decision we like, we just keep going until we finally reach the highest court. Well, there is no higher court than God himself. But it gets even better, though. When you just think, man, it's like, okay, Paul, I get it. He just keeps going. Because Paul says, not only do we have a righteous judge who has already acquitted us, we also have an advocate in Christ who continually, still, to this day, pleads our case. Paul writes, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Christ not only lived a perfect, righteous life for us so that we can be righteous, He not only made atonement for our sins so we can be forgiven, He not only was resurrected to prove that our hope is secure, He is now at the exalted right hand of the Father, and He actively uses His exalted position in heaven to plead our case, to continually say, I paid for that. I paid for that. I paid for that. They're, they're righteous. And is this by itself is in addition to the intercessory work the Holy Spirit is doing inside of us who prays for us as we ought but don't know how to. The Son and the Spirit both are interceding for us. This truth has led the late John Murray to write joyfully, the children of God have two divine intercessors, Christ is their intercessor in the court of heaven, and the Holy Spirit is their intercessor in the theater of their own hearts. And again, we see our security and salvation rests upon the fullness of the triune God because all three persons of the Trinity work together to redeem us and keep us secure. This is the truth that Paul has been driving home. And one more time, if that weren't enough to convince you, if God himself being for us wasn't enough, and if our acquittal in heaven before a holy judge who declares us righteous isn't enough, and if, if the knowledge of Christ himself advocating isn't enough, Paul then points us to the glorious love of God, and he asks, then, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And again, we come back to the same answer, no one. No one can separate us from the sovereign king. No one can stand against God. No one can accuse us. No one can snatch us out of his hands. No one can separate us from his love. Not, not a man, not an angel, not anyone. And then Paul presses the issue even further beyond just people. He presses into to our circumstances and, and our sufferings. And then he asks, what can separate us? He asks, shall tribulation, distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded sheep, regarded as, as sheep to be slaughtered. The truth is the Christian life is not a call to a pain-free, problem-free life. If somebody told you that, they lied. Okay. The reality is, is, Jesus himself said that in this world, you will have trouble. It's, it's going to happen. We will suffer. 
We may even suffer persecution. I mean, that might come. We might suffer for our faith. But even if we don't, we still experience pain, all of us. We all experience betrayal. We all experience want. We all experience loss. We experience sickness and disease and even death itself. Coming to Christ doesn't make us immune to the present sufferings of this world. We still live in a fallen world full of fallen people in bodies that are still buffeted by remaining sin. And so Paul rightly then asks, will these trials and difficulties, will they, will they shatter our hearts to the point where we can be separated from God's love? Will God forget us in the darkness? Will, will He abandon us at our weakest moment? Will His love grow cold for us when we struggle in our suffering to even raise our gaze to heaven? Will our own hearts give up on God when the shadows of this life loom large on the horizon? Paul then gives us the answer and says, no. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. I want you to let that statement settle in your heart and your minds. Paul says, in all these things, what things? The difficulties, the sufferings of this life, the things that, that we go through that cause us to question whether or not we can even like endure. All of these things that would seem to threaten our relationship with God, he said, in all of these things, for those who trust in Him, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. In this text, Paul uses a word that literally means to beyond conquer. I think this is a really an important thing for us to think about because it means to exceedingly conquer. You see, the image that, that, that Paul is conveying here is not that we end up just barely surviving, that we just barely skate into heaven just by the skin of our teeth. I mean, if you've watched The Lord of the Rings, Return of the King, by the way, one of our favorite movies as a family, we've watched it dozens of times, right? But you remember near the end of the movie, how is it they, they finally get through, right? Like they make one last desperate attempt to finally achieve victory, right? It's a desperate struggle. And they're all beat up and their numbers are few and the end is uncertain for them, right? And they've committed themselves to one last desperate battle and Sam and Frodo, right? They, they struggle up the slopes of Mount Doom, wearied and exhausted to the point that they, they don't even have any strength. And when it's over, right? When, they, when it's over, they finally are victorious, right? They, 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 they win, right? But, but just barely, right? Just by the skin of their teeth, Frodo nearly failed to rid himself of the ring. Aragorn nearly was killed by a giant troll and Gandalf was almost wiped out by the Nazgul and, and this tiny remnant of, of the armies of men are surrounded by these hordes of, of evil orcs that are about to overcome them. But then in the last second they win, but they do so barely. That is not the image that Paul is trying to leave us with. I want you to hear me on that, brothers and sisters. That is not the picture that Paul is painting for us. In Christ, we don't have just barely enough to cross the finish line into our glorious hope. We don't have just enough strength to overcome the suffering in this life. In Christ, we have abundantly more strength than we will ever need to overcome. That's what he's saying. We are more than conquerors because God Himself is the one who is for us. So no one else can be against us. We have more than we need because God Himself is the one who justifies us. That means no one then can accuse us. We will conquer exceedingly because there's nothing, nothing, nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. And then Paul said, if that said as if that were not enough, again, if that weren't enough to convince you, he says, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, 
nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul addresses just about every conceivable realm in which something might try to stand against us and separate us from God's love. In fact, if you notice, he says, nothing in all of creation. This, again, brings us right back to who God is and His attributes, because what we know about God is He's completely holy and different and other than all of His creation. There's only two states of existence. There's God, and then there's creation. There's no in-between. There is God, and then there's everything else that was created. And God is self-existent, eternal, and infinite. Creation depends on God for existence, is temporal and finite. And so there's this gigantic distinction between God and everything else that He created. And what Paul, in his closing argument, says about our security, he says that in all things that are created, all things that God brought into existence, if you combine it all together in all of its power, none of it can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. The sum total of all of the forces in the entire universe, the force of gravity, the atomic force, all the force of hate, all the forces that you can possibly imagine we haven't even discovered yet, those forces are not near enough to separate us from the love of God that we have in Christ Jesus. Because if God is for us, right? it is God Himself who is for us, by the way. It is God Himself who is with us. It is God Himself who is in us. It is God who does all that needs to be done for us. And Paul ends with his glorious and worship-filled exclamation that nothing in heaven or on earth can separate us from the love of God because God, who is all-powerful and sovereign, is the one who saves us and keeps us safe. Salvation is the work of God and no other, and, and no power can undo what He's done. In fact, let me just remind you of what the hymn writer wrote, and I'll have Matt come forward because I want us to sing this together. But I want you to hear the words again. And maybe I can read them again without tearing up. On that day, freed from sinning, I shall see thy lovely face. Full arrayed in blood-washed linen, how I'll sing thy sovereign grace. Come, my Lord, no longer tarry. Bring thy promises to pass. For I know thy power will keep me till I'm home. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.